Today's reading comes from Mark um, chapter 9, 2 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up high the mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising, what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they please, as is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we ask that as we have the next few minutes to reflect upon it, that you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand, and wills to obey, that we might see Jesus high and lifted up, that we might gain a little bit uh, better glimpse of his glory this morning. For Christ's sake we pray, amen. Glory, brightness, greatness, shine. These are things that we all seek after. The Ava brothers have a song called Down with the Shine, and they critique our cultural search for glory and shine in all the wrong places. Well, as we search for shine, as we search for glory, where should we find them? Where should we seek after them? In our text, we learn that the disciples were confronted with glory and shine and they didn't know what to do with it. Do we? So today we're going to look at real glory, real shine, and a right response to it. First, real glory. Our text tells us that it's been six days since Peter's good confession, but his misunderstanding of who Jesus is. If you weren't with us last week, Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the King, the Messiah. And then Jesus says, Peter, you're right, but I'm going to die. Peter says, that will never happen to you, Lord. And so Jesus then rebukes Peter and says, you don't get it. You don't know me. You don't know the type of king that I am. This concept was utterly foreign to Peter. And so Jesus gives the strongest rebuke that he can to Peter, saying, get behind me, Satan. Because if I don't die, there is no kingdom. If I don't die, there is no salvation. Well, six days have passed from this ordeal. And Jesus, in his kindness and in his grace, takes Peter along with James and John up onto a high mountain, and he's transfigured before them. His clothes become 
dazzling white, whiter than any bleach could make them. His face shines like the sun. His veil is lifted, and we see him for a brief moment for who he really is. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. For just a moment, we see his shine. We see his brilliance, his brightness. And this incident is one of the high points, both literally and literarily, in the Gospel of Mark. Mark has taken us to the top of the mountain. And it's from this mountaintop experience that the rest of the Gospel is going to unfold. You see, in the ancient world, it was from mountains that revolutionaries went to announce their agenda, to rally the troops, to begin a revolution. New leaders would go up mountains to develop a strategy, a plan of how they would come into power, of how they would begin their conquest from the mountain. This was common practice, and there's actually nothing different happening here than what happened in other cultural moments. Jesus takes on the role of being a new king. Jesus takes on the role of exerting his power and his authority, but he puts a different twist onto the story. Once again, we're told that Jesus is going to be a king who's going to die. And so he goes up on the mountain with three of his earthly followers, Peter, James, and John. And then he also mysteriously meets with two ancient people, Moses and Elijah. Why them? Why not Jeremiah and Jonathan from the Old Testament, or Abraham and David, or Job and Jonah. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, to Israelite readers who would have known their Old Testaments, this wasn't too hard to figure out. Moses and Elijah were the greatest in their field. Moses was a great lawgiver. He had spoken directly to God. He had received the law of God from the very mouth of God. He went up on a mountain, Mount Sinai, to receive the Ten Commandments. Elijah is the ultimate prophet. He's the standard by which all other prophets in the Old Testament are measured. He's the one who faced down the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel. Moses is the ultimate lawgiver. Elijah is the ultimate prophet. And they meet on this mountain. They meet with Jesus but Jesus isn't like them. Jesus isn't a colleague to them. He's not their equal. He is so much greater than both of them combined. That's one of the points that this text makes clear when Peter blunders these words about building three tents, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus, as if they were equals. But Jesus, in the presence of these other men, outshines them all. He's the one that Moses and Elijah, that all the law and all the prophets have been waiting for. As great as Moses and Elijah are, Jesus far outshines all of them. He has no rivals. He has no equals. Many have looked at this passage And they've come to the wrong conclusion about this passage. They've said things like, you know, this passage was just made up by the disciples to try to tell us 
certain things about Jesus to try to make Jesus look a lot better than he actually was. One of the reasons that we can look at this text and say it wasn't made up is because of what's included in the text. We have Peter's blundering line about building three tents, about not knowing what to say. You don't put a ridiculous statement like that in something that wasn't true, that didn't happen. Some of you may hear this text and be skeptical about it. You may find it hard to believe that Jesus actually was transfigured the way that the text describes or that Moses and Elijah appeared the way that the text describes them to appear. But if you come to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh, the amazing thing isn't that Jesus appeared to his disciples revealing his glory or that he met with these ancient figures and showed his glory to them. The shocking thing about this text and about all the Gospels is that Jesus doesn't reveal his glory to us over and over and over again. He's the king of glory. He's the king of brightness. But only briefly, only for moments, do we see him in his glory. Do we see him in his blazing brightness? Normally, he's a humble king. He's a king that doesn't want to draw attention to himself. Even in this text, he tells his disciples, let's keep this a secret. Let's not tell anybody else about this. And this is utterly strange. Because normally, when we get a glimpse of glory, we want to share it. We want to tell others about it. We want to exaggerate it. Think about leaders in our culture they exaggerate their glory. They exaggerate their shine. Politicians, business leaders, civic leaders, preachers flaunt their greatness by exaggerating their accomplishments. Exaggerating greatness is normal. Hiding it is not. But that's what Jesus does. Only for a moment, only briefly here on the mountain, does Jesus show us who he really is in all his brightness, in all his glory? He's unlike all the other kings who draw attention to themselves. Well, on this mountain, as he and his disciples are having a conversation about his kingdom, he's giving to them a game plan. He's giving to them a strategy Mark doesn't tell us explicitly what they're talking about, although the other gospel writers do, Luke especially. Luke tells us that on the mountain, they were having a conversation about Jesus' exodus. Jesus' exodus. Why would they have this conversation? And what does that mean? Well, friends, the exodus is the story of the Bible, the Exodus is the story of how God's people are delivered from the Egyptians, from the pharaohs of the past, from slavery in Egypt to freedom, to live in this promised land. Those themes of from slavery to freedom are prominent throughout the Bible. It's a story that gets repeated over and over and over again. And on this mountain, Jesus tells them about a greater Exodus that Jesus is going and he is going to subdue a greater Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of sin and death and evil. And he's going to cross through a greater sea and he's going to bring about a greater deliverance. 
He is going to redeem his people fully and finally and completely. This is what they're talking about. This is what they're discussing, that the exodus and all of its glory and all of its greatness and all of its brightness and all of its shine is going to come to the people of God. And the disciples don't get it. He talks about the exodus of the resurrection, and verse 10 tells us that they ask, what does this even mean? And then verse 32 later in this chapter tells us, after explaining once again to them his death and resurrection, that they did not understand what he was talking about, and they were afraid to ask him. See, most Jews believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed at the end of history, on the great and final day, on the last judgment day, that God would raise all faithful Israelites collectively. He would bring about resurrection to Israel. And Jesus says something surprising and shocking and amazing, that resurrection is not going to happen at the end of history, but rather in the middle of history. God is going to do now for his people what he promised he would do for them at the end of time. And the disciples don't get it. They don't get what Jesus was telling them. Peter once again opens up his big mouth and says, let's build tents. Let's make a tent for you, Jesus, a tent for Moses, a tent for Elijah. And Peter shows us once again that the disciples have no clue what Jesus is doing in the world. It's only been six days that Peter opened his big mouth and was rebuked by Jesus. And now Peter once again opens his mouth and shows us that he doesn't get it, that he forgets who Jesus is. Maybe Peter was saying, this is great up here on the mountain with you, Jesus. On the mountain with Moses and Elijah, this is pretty awesome. Let's just stay up here and rest. Let's build some tents so that we can experience this for a little bit longer. You know, down below, down in the valley, there's difficulty, there's hardship, there's trial. Mark tells us that the disciples down below are uh, fighting with a demon that won't come out of somebody. And so maybe Peter's just saying, Lord, I like it up here, and I really want to rest or Peter's statement actually could be far more militaristic. There are several places in the Old Testament where the phrase, to your tents, is a call to take up arms. Peter is the aggressive disciple. Peter is the disciple that's willing to fight. Peter is the one who later takes out a sword and cuts off a soldier's ear at Jesus' arrest. Peter is ready for war. Peter is ready to overthrow the foreign rulers, ready to have his Messiah take over, ready to establish base camp from this mountain and from this place go out and have Jesus conquer in Peter's image. Well, whether Peter's statement is reflective of a desire to rest or a desire to wage war, Peter once again has missed Christ's message. He gets it all wrong. He fails to understand the central act that Jesus is committed to, and that is to go to the cross. Peter wants to stay on the mountain. 
Peter doesn't want Jesus to go down the mountain. Peter knows that if Jesus goes down the mountain, he is going to suffer and die. And Jesus' decision to go down the mountain in Mark's gospel, from here on out, he goes directly to Jerusalem. From this point on, Jesus is on a journey to go to the cross. And Peter once again says, don't do it, Lord. Let's just stay here. Let's have you establish your glory and your greatness from this mountain like so many other leaders have caused revolutions to happen from mountains. And they fail to see that Christ's glory is once again going to be on display, not in the way that the world defines glory, but by going to the cross. They failed to grasp this new Exodus story. And because they failed to grasp this Exodus story, because they failed to see Jesus shine, they failed to have a right response. And so let's now look at what a right response would mean for them and what a right response would mean for us. In our text, the Father speaks again. The Father speaks these words that he spoke at Jesus' baptism The same words now are spoken at the transfiguration. And the Father says, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Listen to him. And that's our right response as his followers, is to listen to Jesus, to do what he tells us. And the thing that we learn that we're to listen to Jesus about is the thing that his first disciples didn't get, his death and his resurrection. We, as his followers, are to work out the implications of his death and of his resurrection in everything that we do. Our lives are to be shaped and to be formed by his death and resurrection as we live as mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, employers and employees, were to hear the message of the Exodus in everything and be shaped by that message in all that we do. And friends, I'm afraid that we haven't listened to the Son very well. We've substituted other stories, other messages, than the message of his death and resurrection. Recently, I went to a large Christian bookstore. I was looking for a particular book, and they didn't have it. And I said, well, since I'm here, I might as well browse around. And I was disappointed by what I found. I was looking for books that talked about the exodus of Christ, that pointed me to the death and resurrection of Jesus Books that uh, made me know that Christian authors knew this story of Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. But I walked away with a renewed sense of how utterly laughable the Christian subculture is. Here are a few examples of how we have failed to listen to Jesus, of what I discovered in this bookstore. This bookstore was selling eyeglasses just reading glasses, called Spiritual Enlightenment, reading glasses for your soul. As if buying these reading glasses were some sort of magical eyeglasses. 
They were selling candy called Scripture Candy, reaching the world for Christ one piece of candy at a time, as if Jesus commanded us to pass out candy. Or soul sweetness, touch the soul, tickle the palate, as if that somehow is going to make us like Jesus, eating some sort of Christian candy. They were selling ridiculous pictures of Jesus and a Doogie Hauser-like surgeon operating on a patient, pictures of Jesus and a Donald Trump-like figure closing a deal, as if the glory of Christ's care for his people can be properly expressed in such poor art. The Christian subculture in many ways has turned the incarnation into a commodity to be purchased rather than a king to be worshipped. We have failed to listen to the Son. Because the story of the Son is the story of his death and resurrection. We get fascinated by so many other things in the Christian life and the Christian story. And so we write about it and we make books about it. We make eyeglasses about it and candy about it. And we won't be powerful. We won't be authentic. We won't be of use in God's good world when we do this. The cross is our story. The resurrection is our story. And these things are a thing of beauty to us and to the world. If we take our eyes off the cross, if we take our eyes off the resurrection, we fail to listen to the Son we fail to have a right response to the Son. Friends, if you're not a Christian and you hear some examples of how the Christian subculture has made Christianity laughable, you might come to the conclusion, okay, well, I just give up on it. There's nothing here to consider. Don't do that. Listen once again to this story. Consider once again the glory of Christ's transfiguration. Consider once again his shine. Consider once again that you are seeking for glory, that you do want shine. And where are you going to find it? If you search for it elsewhere, in your beauty, in your wealth, in your relationships, in anything but Jesus, it's not going to last. It's going to wear out. So down with the shine, except for Jesus. Because only Jesus and his shine actually lasts. Because the story of Jesus' death and resurrection is still being told today in places like Lamar Middle School. And the only proper response to the story of Jesus' shine is to enter into it and to say, this is the face, this is the brightness, this is the glory that's going to shape my life rather than anything else. Friends, do you remember the movie Napoleon Dynamite and the character Uncle Rico? Uncle Rico is stuck in 1982. He's living out a shine in his life that is dimming. In the scene where he describes this shine, he says, if coach would have just put me in in the fourth quarter, everything would have been different. We'd have gone to state, I'd have earned a scholarship and gone pro. I'd have been the desire of every girl in town. Things would be really different if coach would have just put me in in the fourth quarter. 
Uncle Rico, some 30 years later, is living out the futility of trying to find shine in anything but Jesus. Friends, you'll never find shine in your past, in your present, in your future, in your family, in your friends, in your wealth, in anything else but Jesus and the shine of his death and his resurrection. Jesus alone is glorious. Jesus alone shines. You cannot improve upon him. All other forms of glory, all other types of shine are fading. Friends, we're all looking for glory. And where are we seeking it? To the degree that you understand the story of the Exodus, the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, to that degree you'll find true and lasting shine. To the degree that you gaze upon Jesus and his shining face through his death and resurrection, to that degree you'll be changed from one degree of glory into another. And the beauty of Christianity is that when we gaze at Jesus' face, when he becomes our shine, then we, by him, by faith, by grace, by the Holy Spirit, are transformed to become a little bit like him and to share this shine, to share this goodness with the world. Christianity alone has an understanding of glory that's so broad and so generous. Other forms of glory, other forms of shine are exclusive. If you try to give it away, if you try to spread it out, it gets diminished. But Christianity's understanding of shine and glory, as you share it, it grows all the brighter. It grows all the greater. Christ lavishly shares his glory with his children and calls his children to share it with others. So where are you seeking shine? Where are you seeking glory? Max Lucado helps us to understand the glory of Christ's transfiguration in these words. He says, Gone is the pomp of religion. Dissipated is the fog of theology. Momentarily lifted is the opaque curtain of controversy. And opinion erased are all our own blinding errors and egotisms. And there he stands, Jesus. Have you seen him? Those who first did were never the same my Lord and my God, cried Thomas. We have seen his glory, declared John. But Peter said it best. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. His majesty, the emperor of Judah, all the splendor of heaven revealed in a human body. For a period ever so brief, the doors to the throne room were open and God came near. His majesty was seen. Heaven touched earth. Things will never be the same. Something happens to a person who has witnessed his majesty. Once you have seen his face, you will forever long to see it again. Have you seen his face? Have you seen his shine? Do you long to see it again? If you have, then seek him this week. Find him this week. Listen to him this week. Seek his shine. Let's pray. Father, we ask that we would be down with all the other glistening shines that fail us so often and so repeatedly and so drastically. And that we would find our shine in you. 
and that we would find you to be the source of our life, the source of our love, and as we encounter your face, that we would be changed into your brightness and into your glory, and that you'd use us to bring your shine, to bring your radiance to bear in your good world. For Christ's sake we pray, amen.